Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hey, podcast listeners, this is Meb here solo today. I'm in somewhat of a foul mood after Virginia got bounced yet again from the NCAA tournament by almost 30 points. The good news, I was watching the game on Catalina, so I wasn't too depressed out on the ocean having a few beers, but uh, I thought today we'd do something fun. First, I'm going to give you guys a gift. I'm going to make available to every podcast listener a free copy of my most recent book. This is uh, called Invests with the House, Hacking the Top Hedge Funds. And this is a really interesting book and topic, particularly for me. It's something that goes back all the way to the late 90s was when I started working on this research. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding on this space. So really wanted to talk about the hedge fund space. If you guys haven't started watching Billions, it's really a wonderful show. I, I know I'm a little late to the game there, but it's a, it's a pretty great show. And so there's, there's a renewed, rekindled interest in hedge funds. So I wanted to read a few chapters from this book and see if you guys like it. But you can go download a free copy at freebook.mebfaber.com and you'll get a PDF and then you can read that anywhere. So we'll get started. I'll interject. I'm going to read, but I'm also going to interject a little bit, maybe with some uh, comments, some stories, etc. And uh, if you guys like this, I don't know. We're trying a lot of experimental things. You know, we, this could even be a weekly feature where we profile some of these managers, their holdings, what are they buying, what are they up to, ones you shouldn't follow, ones you should. Let us know. Shoot us feedback at themebfavorshow.com. Again, uh, please, um, one caveat, by the way, since I'm giving you this free book, it's only $9.99, but I'm giving you a free book. Would really love a review on Amazon. It's my least reviewed book for some reason, but again, freebook.mebfaber.com. Let's get started today with Invests with the House, Hacking the Top Hedge Funds, published in 2016. On the back cover of the book, I have a quote, which also starts the book, and it's from 90, I think, four-year-old Charlie Munger. Um, just went to the Daily Journal meeting a, a few months ago in LA, and, and what a national treasure he is. Charlie's the best, one of the still brightest people you'll ever meet. But he has a quote, and I put this on the big letters in the back of the book, and it says, I believe in the discipline of mastering the best that other people have ever figured out. I don't believe in just sitting there and trying to dream it all up yourself. Nobody's that smart. So chapter one, we start with that quote, and it's called, The Casino Can Be Beat. Stock picking is hard, really, really hard. The odds are stacked against you. My friends at Longboard Asset Management completed a study called the Capitalism Distribution that examined stock returns from the top 3,000 stocks from 1983 to 2007. By the way, J.P. Morgan has also published a paper on this, as well as another academic. We'll link to him in the show notes. We've also had a great podcast with Eric Crittenden of Longboard on one of the earliest podcast episodes. Check those out. Anyway, they found that 64% of stocks underperformed the broad stock market index. 39% of stocks 
were unprofitable investments. Think about that for a second. Almost half. If you just picked a a stock, threw a dart against a wall, almost half were unprofitable investments. 19% of stocks lost at least 75% of their value, and 25% of stocks were responsible for all of the market's gains. Simply picking a stock out of a hat means you have a 64% chance of underperforming a basic index fund and a 39% chance of losing money. Not only is it hard to pick stocks, but you're also up against the most talented investors in the world. People like Ray Dalio, who's the founder of Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest hedge fund. Dalio is fond of comparing stock market investing to a poker game, and his description brings to mind the old saying that if you sit down at a poker table and you don't know who the sucker is, then you're the sucker. Dalio spent oodles of time and money to make sure he's not the sucker. Here's how he once described his investment methods using this poker analogy. The bets are zero-sum. In order for you to beat me in the game, it's like poker. It's a zero-sum game. We have 1,500 people that work at Bridgewater. We spend hundreds of millions of dollars on research and so on. We've been doing this for 37 years, and we don't know that we're going to win. We have to add diversified bets. So it's very important for most people to know when not to make a bet. Because if you're going to come to the poker table, you're going to have to beat me. And you're going to have to beat those who take money. So the nature of investing is that a very small percentage of people take money, essentially, in that poker game away from other people who don't know when prices go up, whether that means it's a good investment or if it's a more expensive investment. End of quote. With a superior stable of research investment talent, Dalio figures he can beat most of the other players at the table. And he does. His Bridgewater Fund posts investment returns that make others jealous. He does it year after year. Here's what's really interesting, though. He's not the only one. A special few have done it as well, beating the market year after year. They don't all do it in the same way or with the same investments. Some have done it better than others, and some eventually falter. But the fact is, it happens, and it does so with some consistency. Now, we make two assumptions that are vital to the arguments in this podcast and book. There are active managers that can beat the market, i.e. the market is not completely efficient, And two, superior active managers can be identified ahead of time. These two concepts are difficult for many investors to swallow. There's a general feeling that the market can't be beat, and it is tough to get past that belief. The big challenge is separating luck from skill, but would anyone deny that some people are better than others at stock picking? Just like any other profession, the investment field has top experts who are paid handsomely for what they do. Warren Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway certainly comes to mind, one of the most famous stock pickers of all time, and with an estimated net worth of more than $70 billion, he's also one of the richest people in the world. The 2014 Berkshire Hathaway annual report that in, has, indicates that the per, value, per share market value of the company has increased at a compounded rate of 21% since 1965, compared to an average of about 10% for the S&P, the outperformance is striking. In fact, there was a businessman from Singapore in 2014 that paid over $2 million in charity auction to have lunch with Buffett. But a lot of people don't know that. It's possible to learn some of Buffett's wisdom for a lot less. In fact, it's possible to learn what stocks he's buying and selling for free. One of the most basic principles of U.S. stock market is transparency and is a characteristic that has helped make our stock market so attractive to investors around the world. Of course, it isn't always transparent, and there are noticeable lapses and scandals and shenanigans. But in one particular area, transparency works very well, and that is the area that forms the data source for this book. Under SEC rules, any professional fund manager with more than $100 million in U.S. listed assets must report their stock holdings. That means great stock pickers, such as Warren Buffett, must disclose their stock picks. You may already be aware of this, but many are not. 
Thanks to the internet, you can now look up any of these fund holdings online from the SEC website. There's one of the most valuable sources of market information around. It is simple and easy to access, and it gives you a window into the trading activity of the greatest managers. Sadly, not many investors take advantage of it. Instead, most get their investment information from their brokers or TV talking heads, or they pick up a stock tip from a friend or neighbor. As a recent TI Craft study illustrates, people actually spend more time picking a restaurant or researching which TV to buy than they do planning their retirement investments. But consider what you get when you examine these SEC filings. You have access to the stock picks made by fund managers who often spend millions of dollars in every waking moment thinking and obsessing about the financial markets. If you think the statement is an exaggeration, note there's hedge fund managers who lease satellites to track the department store traffic and resulting sales estimates. These stock picks are the result of painstaking work done by people significantly more capitalized than you, who have way more resources than you, and who, if you select the right ones, are way better than you at picking stocks. The best ones know everything there is to know about a company before they invest. Lee Ainsley, portfolio manager at Maverick Capital, who we examine later in the book, has to say this about how obsessive Julian Robertson of Tiger Management was when examining companies. Quote, Julian was maniacal on the importance of management. Quote, have you done your work on management? Yes, sir. Where did the CFO go to college? Um, um, I thought you did your work. He wanted you to know everything there was to know about the people running the companies you invested in. End of quote. This is your competition. Do you know where the CFO went to college? Do you even know who the CFO is? Do you even know what a CFO is? In case you don't, by the way, chief financial officer. So to go back to the poker analogy, examining SEC filings is like getting a peek at the cards held by these investment managers. It's a great way to learn from some of the brightest minds investing in the world. Would you rather play with them or against them? This book and podcast will begin by examining a case study how an investor could have followed Buffett's stock picks to great success. We will examine the performance of his stock picks in the past to determine how well they performed, a process called backtesting. This can tell you how you might have fared if you had piggybacked on Buffett's stock picks in the past. While it doesn't tell you how a manager will perform in the future, it does give you a record of performance from which you can draw out your own conclusions. Logic suggests that a manager who outperforms consistently must be pretty good at what he does. Will he do it again next year? No one ever knows for sure, but again, logic suggests the odds in your favor if you select and follow a manager who has a demonstrated record of success and then prudently add some of his picks to your own portfolio. Buffett is an obvious choice to start with. He's the first of 20 of the best investors in the world whose backgrounds and track records we'll examine. I provide a brief overview of the process of following these star managers, along with some case studies that demonstrate the manager's stock picks in detail and how the portfolios would have performed since the year 2000. You can then build a stable of these managers and use them as your own personal idea farm for stock ideas to research and possibly implement to your own portfolio. The process I outline is an effective way to track and potentially copy the stock picks of some of the best stock pickers in the world. Let's get started. Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett, and Charlie Munger, Chapter 2. Quote, techniques shrouded in mystery clearly have the value to the purveyor of investment advice. After all, which witch doctor has ever achieved fame and fortune by simply advising, take two aspirins? End of quote. That's Warren. Warren's one of the most famous investors of all time. His Omaha-based Berkshire Hathaway is one of the most successful investment companies ever. His pronouncements are so revered that they have earned him the nickname the Sage of Omaha. He, Buffett practices a style of stock selection called value investing, and he's always given credit for his success to the techniques and principles he learned from his mentor, Benjamin Graham. 
who's the author of The Legendary Tome, Security Analysis, first published in 1939, and The Intelligent Investor, first published in 1949. Graham ran his own investment partnership for years, grounded on the concept of buying stocks that were cheap compared to their intrinsic values. He preached buying securities that had a, quote, margin of safety. But while Buffett has spent his entire life making money through value investing, Graham ended up reconsidering some of the basic tenets of the practice. Graham decided that the investment world had changed so much over time that the markets had become much more efficient, making it too difficult to make money by looking for undervalued stock gems. He began to adopt the efficient market hypothesis, which holds that the market is so efficient that stock prices always incorporate and reflect all relevant information, but it makes it all but impossible to beat the market through stock selection. Graham discusses his conversion to market efficiency in an article from the Financial Analyst Journal in 1976. Quote, I am no longer an advocate of elaborate techniques of security analysis in order to find superior value opportunities. This was a rewarding activity, say, 40 years ago when our textbook Graham and Dodd was first published, but the situation has changed a great deal since then. In the old days, any well-trained security analyst could do a good professional job of selecting undervalue issues through detailed studies. But in light of the enormous amount of research now being carried on, I doubt whether in most cases such extensive efforts would generate sufficiently superior selections to justify their cost. To that very limited extent, I'm on the side of the efficient market school of thought now generally accepted by the professors. End of quote. And it's funny, Graham came to this conclusion prior to the advent of the internet, Bloomberg, and other modern research tools. The efficient market hypothesis that was making the rounds through academia and investing public at the time suggests it is nearly impossible to beat the market through stock selection. We'll call it EMH from now on. So EMH is where Buffett and his mentor parted ways. Buffett has famously dismissed the EMH stating, I'd be a bum on the street with a Tim Cup if the markets were always efficient. For Buffett's style of investing, value investing to be successful, the efficient market theory must not be valid. If it were, there'd be no value stocks to be found. Buffett himself has said, The disservice done to students and gullible investment professionals who have swallowed EMH has been an extraordinary service to us. It is my view that Buffett is correct on this point, and for proof, one need look no further than his investment record or the records of any other number of successful managers who employ a similar value investing style that seeks to capitalize on market inefficiency. Today, an investor who wants exposure to Buffett's investing acumen can invest in any number of mutual funds that share the Buffett investment style. When he closed his early investment partnership in 1969, he advised his investors to place money in the Sequoia Fund. Um, which reopened in 2008 for the first time since 1985, which, by the way, uh, became a subject of a bunch of media scrutiny uh, dealing with their Valiant investment, which became a huge concentrated uh, portfolio. Uh, Maybe we'll talk about that later, but we're going to skip over that for now. Uh, Tweedy Brown Family Funds was another good example. In fact, several employees of the old Graham-Newman partnership founded the firm. While Buffett has gone on to deploy hedge fund techniques such as currency and commodity trading, merger arbitrage, convertible arbitrage, catastrophe bonds, pipes, and private equity, he's mostly known for his stock picks. There have been numerous books that have tried to divine exactly how Buffett goes about selecting his investments. The American Association of Individual Investors and Validia Capital Management have developed screens that are designed to find companies that Buffett would buy based on criteria he has promoted through decades of public speaking, annual reports, and prior transactions. AQR Capital even published a white paper entitled Buffett's Alpha that attempts to distill his process down to a single algorithm. Some investors simply buy Berkshire Hathaway stock, gaining access to his portfolio management skills, exposure to the operations of an insurance conglomerate, and entry into the Berkshire Hathaway annual shareholder meeting, which I highly recommend attending, by the way. 
But why not just buy what Warren buys? We set out in this chapter to examine whether following Berkshire Hathaway's investments through government filings could offer the investor the opportunity to piggyback on Buffett stock picks and consequently outside, achieved outside returns. We'll get there shortly, but first a little background. In 1975, Congress passed Section 13F, pursuant to the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. This measure required the manager of every institutional fund with assets under management over $100 million to report its holdings to the SEC once a quarter. Congress enacted this legislation to improve the disclosure and transparency of these big firms with the hope of increasing confidence in the financial markets. In the early days, accessing these records, called Form 13F or Form 13F-HR, it was difficult and tedious. These days, the forms are uploaded to the SEC website, and an investor can view the holdings 45 days delayed after quarter end. By reviewing the 13Fs, you can see and dissect the holdings of every manager from Soros to Klarman to Carl Icahn to Warren Buffett all for free. The SEC maintains these filings on Edgar Database and posts the electronic versions of 13F filings within a day of receiving them. Other websites, including Edgar Online, Bloomberg, FactSet, LionShares, aggregate the information in a more usable and searchable formats, often for a fee. The electronic data go back to the late 1999, although the archives in Washington, D.C. contain paper records that go back further. There's also a lot more uh, websites in the back of the book under resources. Remember, the book's free, freebook.mevfavor.com, but uh, where you can look these up. So to reach the Berkshire filing page, all investors got to do, visit the SEC website, search under company name for Berkshire Hathaway. Laundry list of filings pops up. You can search through them for any of the 13Fs, or you can narrow it by typing 13F in the, in the type box. Since they're published within 45 days after a quarter end, the quarter that ended June 30th, 2016, would be available around August 15th. Examining the, this 13F from Berkshire reveals a laundry list of longtime Buffett holdings you'll be familiar with, such as Coke, Amex, Wells Fargo, and Coca-Cola. The SEC filing format is a little difficult to read and comprehend. Again, a number of websites publish the current holdings, like Whale Wisdom, in a much more readable format. And this information is indeed interesting, but it can be of any, can it be of any value? After all, the data is 45 days stale when you see it, and the manager may well not even own a particular stock by the time the 13F is posted. In addition, he may have added a stock at the start of the 90-day reporting cycle, so a new stock could have been purchased as long as 130 days ago. To further muddy the waters, some managers game the system by omitting certain re- recently acquired holdings and then filing an amended 13F form later. But even with all these delays, there's plenty of rich data here that you can use. By sticking with managers who have a long holding period, the delay in reporting time should not be a major factor in your own performance uh, if you're trying to piggyback them. In Buffett's case, he has stated that his favorite holding period is forever, so turnover should not be a big issue. The major value added in the investing process from the managers in this book will examine is actually in stock picking, not in market timing. The portfolios I'll track are long only, while most hedge funds are short, or long short, and also use derivatives to hedge or le- leverage their ideas. But these positions do not show up in the 13F filing. They will not concern us here. So here's the methodology. One, download all the 13F quarterly filings back to 2000. Two, create historical stock portfolios, including all stocks that are no longer traded due to delistings, buyouts, mergers, bankruptcies, etc. We also include all dividends, cash, stock, special, etc. We then equal weight the top 10 holdings with a 10% weight for each stock. In reality, if there's more than 10 holdings, I simply use the 10 biggest as the majority of a manager's performance should be driven by his largest holdings. Investors could also weight the holdings similarly to how the manager weights them in his portfolio. But let's just use a simple example for this book and podcast. In reality, it actually doesn't matter that much. Four, 
rebalance, add and delete holdings quarterly, and calculate performance as the 20th day of the month to allow all fallings to arrive. As far as the back testing, it's not realistic for an individual investor to go and do this work on their own. Even finding a historical stock database is problematic. The good news is I've done this for you. You can follow along the pages that follow. So using the methodology presented uh, that we just presented, the simulated results for the period 2000 to 2016 are found here. Let's see. I've actually updated this through 2016. The book only went through 2014, but we got a long laundry list of holdings. You got Kraft, Wells Fargo, Coke, IBM, Amex, Philip 66, all these good dudes. Apple, the big the big news lately, of course, the airlines which they've started buying. First observation is how mediocre the returns have been for US stocks over the past 16 years, which is right around 5% a year. That's much less than the historical 10% that we've experienced back to 1900. How did the Berkshire portfolio do? It did 9.7%. Drawdowns were roughly about the same. The Berkshire portfolio, 43%. S&P had that 50.9% drawdown. Buffett's equity selections outperformed the indices quite substantially. Volatility was reasonable, which is a little bit surprising given that the portfolio only contained 10 holdings. If you ran a mutual fund with these numbers, you'd be one of the best performing managers in the United States. Again, that's Buffett outperforming by five percentage points per year since 2000. There's another study by some academics titled, Imitation is the Sincerest Form of Flattery, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway, and it found a similar method to ours would have resulted in returns over 10 percentage points or higher than the S&P if you went all the way back to 1976. In a more recent paper entitled Buffett's Alpha by AQR, it found uh, similar results. So one question many readers and listeners often ask, how does the cloning strategy perform versus just buying Berkshire stock? So it turns out the good news is either strategy works great and beat the S&P by about four to five percentage points per year. And note that the outperformance has occurred while Buffett and Berkshire have underperformed the S&P since the bottom in 2009. In fact, this clone has underperformed the S&P 500 seven of the last 10 years. We were, we were unsure if t- uh, 2016 was going to be an uh, underperformer year or not, but I think he squeaked out barely uh, by, by the end of the year by like 10 basis points. So seven out of 10 the last years, he's underperformed, which is a massive, massive amount. All right. So now we have a decent base case upon which to build. Next chapter, we're going to examine some of the pros and cons of following 13 Fs. I like to be honest about also any investment approach, and you want to look back historically and make sure that you know both the good and the bad. So, quote, my mantra is diversity. I clone my mentors, I copy everything they do, and then I innovate on top of it. That's Henry Markham. So to summarize some of the differences in managing a portfolio based on 13F filings versus allocating an investment to an active hedge fund manager, the following list may be helpful. Pros. One, access. Many of the best hedge funds are not open to new investment capital, and if they are, many have high investment requirements, in in many cases in excess of $10 million. As Mark Yusko of Morgan Creek Capital says, and by the way, he's got a great podcast episode earlier uh, earlier in the year, we don't want to give money to people that want our money. We want to give it to people that don't want our money. A 13F tracking strategy allows investors to follow otherwise inaccessible managers. Pro number two, transparency. 
The investor controls and aware of the exact holdings at all times. If an investor was following the hedge fund Galleon Group during its insider trading scandal, the investor could simply sell all his or her stocks rather than waiting to redeem their allocation. Pro number three, liquidity. The investor can trade out of positions at any time versus the monthly, quarterly, or multi-year lockup periods at hedge funds. Hedge funds have other special provisions like gates, which can be put up to prevent investors from withdrawing money immediately. Many investors were gated during the financial crisis when they wanted to withdraw their investments. Pro number four, and this is a biggie, lower fees. Most hedge funds charge high fees. The standard is 2% management fee and 20% performance. Funds of funds layer on an additional 1% and 10%. The fees associated with managing a 13F portfolio is simply the investor's routine brokerage costs, and that's it. And that is a big deal. Risk targeting is uh, pro number five. Investors can control the hedging leverage to suit their risk tolerances. A number of hedge funds have blown up as a result of excessive leverage uh, or derivatives. Pro number six, fraud avoidance. Investors own and independently custody their assets, thus completely avoiding any custody risks like those in the Madoff scheme in in which investors lost billions. Uh, pro number seven, tax management. Hedge funds typically run their strategies w- without regard to any tax implications, while individual investors can manage their positions in accordance with their respective tax statuses. And the impact of fees and tax management are often minimalized when talking about hedge funds, since the nominal returns are the sexy part of the story. I covered this a lot, the importance of taxes and fees in, in the recent book, Global Asset Allocation. And there's a great paper on this topic called Rules of Prudence for Individual Investors by Mark Kritzman of Wyndham Capital. I'm trying to get Mark on in a, in a future episode. The underreported story is that taxes have a significant impact on returns for the taxable investor. A hedge fund needs to return about 19% to deliver the same after-tax return as a stock index does that, retain, that returns about 10%. This is due to the high turnover resulting in capital gains as well as large performance fees for the hedge fund. Um, but to be honest, there's also some potential negatives to uh, not actually letting the fund manager run the portfolio on his or own or own terms. So here's some cons. One, lack of expertise in portfolio management. The investor does not have access to the timing and portfolio trading capabilities of the manager. Now, this, to be honest, this could also be a benefit if the manager is good at picking stocks, but terrible at timing or position sizing. Con number two, inexact holdings. Crafty hedge fund managers have some tricks to avoid revealing their holdings on 13Fs, like moving positions off the book at the end of the quarter is one of them. The lack of short sales and futures reporting means that the results will differ from hedge fund results. Managers can also get rare exemptions from reporting stocks on 13F filings. Con number three, the 45-day delay in reporting. The The delay in reporting will often... Uh, affect the portfolio in various amounts for various funds. At worst, an investor could own a position in the hedge fund manager sold out a long time ago. Disclosure of a new holding by some famous hedge funds like Greenlight Capital can also cause a stock to move sharply before an investor has time to build a position. Con number four, high turnover strategies. Managers who employ pairs trading or other strategies that trade frequently are poor candidates for 13F replication. Con number five, arbitrage strategies. 13F filings may show that a manager is long a stock when in reality he is using an ARB strategy. The short hedge will not show up in the 13F. Con number six, inconsistent manager skill. Like any active strategy, some managers lose their desired skill over time. How do you determine when to cut a manager from your stable of funds? 
So also to note, just because you're investing alongside a great manager does not spare you from painful drawdowns. The strategy is still long is a long-only stock strategy that will experience similar losses to the broad stock market. Um, and if you remember, the stock market twice in the 2000s declined about half, and all the way back in the Great Depression, stocks declined over 80%. However, we do tackle in the book some hedging ideas, potentially reduce volatility and drawdowns if you want to read it. So there's some investment styles to avoid. I can't tell you how many times I've heard on TV people talking about a handful of 13Fs from these following managers and styles when it makes really no sense whatsoever to follow them. So an investor needs to be really careful when using these filings to understand both the strengths and the weaknesses. Since there are literally thousands of hedge funds and mutual fund managers to choose from, how does one go about narrowing the list of managers? This is not an easy question to answer, and unfortunately, an intimate knowledge of the hedge fund space is a big advantage. However... I'll outline a few of the criteria to look for, as well as a list and selection of managers I admire to get started. Funds to avoid includes those that fit the following criteria. Short bias or short only funds. Since they don't show up in 13F filings, it's impossible to track what your hedge funds are doing with their shorts unless they disclose them publicly. An example is Kinecos Associates and Jim Chanos. High turnover trading. If a fund trades too much, quarterly filings and 45-day delay will not accurately reflect what the fund is holding. I focus primarily on value investors in this book, which typically have lower turnover. While it is a bit fuzzy as to what level of turnover is too much, in general, the less is better. So an example of this would be something like Stevie Cohen's SAC or .72. Black box. While Renaissance's medallion has certainly performed head and shoulders above almost every hedge fund in existence, and that's after a 4 and 40 fee structure, it's shrouded in mystery. It also trades lots of derivatives. So that's something you want to avoid. And in a similar cousin is global macro and other CTA type of funds. Um, many trade futures, forwards, currencies, and most CTAs are under this umbrella. Some, like someone like John Paulson made a lot of money on housing. It's impossible to replicate. So groups like Soros or Winton, Harding's Winton, doesn't make a lot of sense. And lastly, we already mentioned this, but arbitrage, pair trading is an example of one that doesn't make sense, um, and Fairlawn Capital Management example of one. So uh, let's, let's talk about a few frequently asked questions real quick, and then we'll profile a couple managers and then slowly start to wind this down. Here's the questions we hear most from people, and I think this is important because this will probably answer a lot that you have as well. So number one, Holdings are reported 45 days after the quarter, so you may be buying a stock the manager no longer even owns. The delay makes it impossible to follow these managers, right? So the answer is, first, remember that all these simulated results mentioned in this book already include the effects of using the delayed data. Also recall that if you put enough time and careful analysis up front, you're likely only going to be tracking funds with lower turnover in the first place. However, way back in 2012, I did a study to try and quantify the effect of effect of the 45-day lag. There's some inherent biases, no matter how you chop up the data, like how many funds to include, long, short, early, only, entire universe, do you include dead funds, whether it regress returns based on turn, yada, yada. But I looked at about 20 funds that I've been following for years on my blog. I compared rebalancing on the 13F filing date to rebalance the portfolio of the prior quarter. So basically, a look-ahead bias investors don't have. It shows how a portfolio constructed without the 45-day delay compares to a portfolio with publicly available information. Tesco back to 2000, examining the total return data with no transaction costs. So does it matter? A little. While there's wide variation in the funds, which is to be ex- expected, the delay ranged anywhere from a 3 percentage point penalty for a few funds to a 2 percentage point benefit. Overall, the friction and delay averages about 1.5 percentage points per annum. 
So not that bad. Another side is it doesn't matter a whole lot when you rebalance after disclosure, um, as long as you just do it at some point. Question two, shorts don't show up on a manager's disclosures, so you're not really replicating the fund, right? And so ditto for futures, ARB, and undisclosed. I think this is important because you're only replicating the fund's long stock positions. A firm like the Baupost Group, which we talk about later, may have most of its assets in real estate or distressed debt and only a fraction in equities. So clone portfolios will have serious tracking error in comparison to the underlying fund. However, in many cases, the clones and hedged versions of the clones perform similarly or in some cases superior to the underlying fund and fees are a big reason why. Question three, why shouldn't I just pick the top stock? Isn't that a manager's best idea? We see a lot of people fall under this mistake. We found that the top pick is usually the worst performer out of the top 10 holdings and we discuss this topic more in depth later in the book. But the time the position becomes the largest holding, it is often due to appreciation and not necessarily conviction. Question number four, what fund should I track? Why can't I track the whole universe? We actually think tracking the entire hedge fund universe is a great idea for a short fund. An investor doesn't want the broad market exposure or beta of hedge funds, which is likely to simply be S&P-like, S&P 500-like in nature. Investors want the alpha in hedge funds and tracking the thousands of hedge funds, most of which are not long-term oriented value stock pickers, is a really, really, really bad idea. You may also run the risk of being invested in stocks where there's a high concentration of funds invested in the stocks and poses liquidation risk in the case of market stress. Let's look to the recent Goldman VIP fund, which I think is a wonderful short and a terrible idea for an ETF. As far as what funds attract, we outline 20 funds in the book as well as dozens of funds in the first book and on the blog. Build your own list of favorites through research and always through reading. Question five. Can I just filter the stocks by market cap or sector, momentum, etc.? What about a stop, small cap bias? Answer is yes, you can, but realize that part of the benefit of tracking these managers is their ability to go anywhere. Also realize that any tilts towards the portfolio will have resulting impact of potentially making it less diversified or sector biased. Some funds that are inherently sector focused, uh, which is a little bit slightly different. So examples are healthcare funds like Rob, Baker Brothers, Orbamed, Palo Alto, etc. Six, and this is a tough one we've talked about a few times on the podcast, is how do I know when to stop following a manager? So there's a lot of, lot of ways, and this is where it's a little bit more subjective and hard, um, and, and domain expertise really helps, but something like style drift, lost enthusiasm, resting on their laurels, a nasty divorce, too many assets, went to jail, newer, younger, and hungrier managers, lots of reasons, uh, but the criteria is subjective, and, and it's, it's tough. Uh, number seven, last. Doesn't piggyback on these managers make them angry? Aren't you stealing their ideas? I said, actually, I think these managers should be, should be sending me cases of champagne. And I said, actually, in the book, actually, I'd prefer tequila. But I think I've gone back to champagne or beer. Shockingly, none of them have yet. But So why? By definition, people following 13S will be buying what these managers are selling at some point. We're now going to take a look at some of, these, some of my favorite managers to track. There's no specific screening requirements to arrive at these funds. Rather, it's a combination of years of study combined with qualitative as well as quantitative analysis. Another 15 fund profiles are included in the appendix with a little bit shorter investment track records. I'll offer a very brief introduction to each manager as well as the back-tested performance, current holdings, and the most recent filing. They're in alphabetical order, but it seems fitting we start with the top-performing fund and the first profile, David Tepper's Appaloosa Management.
Let's move on to our first of two manager profiles. Appaloosa's management's David Tepper. He's got a quote that starts the chapter. It says, the key is to wait. Sometimes the hardest thing to do is to do nothing. You'd expect any management fund that takes its name from a distinctive breed of leopard-spotted horse to stand out from the crowd. Appaloosa Management does just that, in large part because of the unique and idiosyncratic investing pattern of its founder, David Tepper. Appaloosa has grown into one of the more influential and storied hedge funds, but its founder grew up in a modest neighborhood in Pittsburgh. His accountant father hit the jackpot in 1986 with a winning lottery ticket. The payoff was thirty grand per year, a windfall for the elder Tepper at the time. These days, David Tepper earns more than that in an hour. He topped the 2014 rich list, rich list for hedge fund manager compensation, published, published by the Institutional Investors Alpha magazine. It was estimated as 2013 earnings at $3.5 billion. It was the second year in a row he came out number one. What makes Tepper worth that much? $20 billion hedge fund that he founded in Short Hills, New Jersey in 1993, Appaloosa Management, regularly turns out returns that delight his investors and wow analysts. His flagship fund, Appaloosa One, produced an estimated 29% net annualized gain since its launch in July 1993. Tepper's not shy about tooting his own horn. He says, quote, I hope for it to be recognized that in the past 20 years, I arguably have the best record and therefore may be the best of this generation, he commented in an interview. Round-faced and jovial, he projects the air of a film character actor, the simple but sincere sidekick to a leading man. His diction retains the imprint of the working-class neighborhood where he grew up, so that when he says the markets, it comes out as the markets. He once described himself as just a regular upper-class middle guy who happens to be a billionaire. But while his pronunciation may not be perfect, his pronouncements and investments tend to be spot on. Wall Street views him as an investment guru worthy of emulation. These days, he has the power to move markets with a few choice words. When he was a guest on CNBC program Squawk Box in May of 2013, he offered a long and detailed explanation of why he thought markets were headed higher. S&P futures had been trading lower before he spoke. By the end of the day, S&P had risen 17 points, a bump many attributed to a Tepper rally. While, he's, while Tepper's closely watched for his views on equity markets, his forte is actually debt. Early in his career, before he was head of the high-yield desk at Goldman, Tepper worked as a finance analyst at Republic Steel Corporation of Ohio. It was there, in the midst of this financially insolvent steel corp, that Tepper learned to navigate the complex credit structure of a distressed company, a skill that would later come to define so much of his investing strategy. By 1993, Tepper acquired enough capital, aided by a partial cash infusion from his Goldman Sachs colleague, Jack Walton, to open Appaloosa and management investors. The general aim of the fund was to draw on his expertise by emphasizing investments in bankruptcies, bankruptcies and distressed debt situations through a 70-30 debt equity allocation in global publicly traded markets. But beyond those loose restrictions, the fund was open to any investing opportunity, and Tepper prided himself on being sector agnostic, event-driven, and often unorthodox. He has a reputation for taking bets contrary to conventional market wisdom, often earning windfall returns while others were nursing losses. The point is, markets adapt. People adapt, he once said. Don't listen to all the crap out there. 
His style relies on macroeconomic and market analysis that he combines with deep and thorough research into specific investment opportunities. While he has maintained the distressed debt specialty in the strategy, he has ventured into other fields, sometimes taking a major position in a company and becoming an activist investor pushing for changes to enhance shareholder value. In recent years, some of his best returns have come from equities, leading other equity investors and analysts to closely monitor his portfolio. Part of his strategy is to move against the grain. The turnaround situations are his strength, such as when he bought the sovereign debt of Argentina in 1995 when most investors sought cover from the financial crisis, or similarly when he purchased futures in South Korean currency in 1997 as most investors were pulling out of the Asian markets. Tellingly, Tepper defies his approach with statements like, we lead the herd, the street follows us, we don't follow the street, and we're consistently inconsistent. It's one of the cornerstones of our success. Some of his most famous bets at Appaloosa were buying debt for pennies on the dollar and big bankruptcies, including Algoma Steel, Enron, WorldCom, and Conseco. He's also made money by buying debt in banks battered by the 2008 economic collapse, as well as airlines at a time when many were facing bankruptcy. Also in late 08, after the collapse of Lehman Brothers, he stabilized the fund by aggressively purchasing preferred shares of Wachovia and Washington Mutual for cents on the dollar. His buying spree continued, and in 2009, he picked up the preferred shares of the Bank of America, the junior debt of Citigroup, and a tranche of commercial mortgage-backed securities floated by AIG. By the time the market stabilized in 2009, this concentrated allocation of financials reaped rewards beyond anything Apple's had ever experienced. They raked in a 120% net of fee return, which amounted to $7 billion to investors and a hefty $4 billion to Tepper himself. Perhaps he put it best when he said, I am the animal at the head of the pack. I either get eaten or I get the good grass. He often wildly shifts around sectors. He is the textbook definition of an opportunity investor. A lot of his success has occurred to well-timed trades like the financial sector in 2009 to 2011. So maybe the best tactic when trapping, t- tracking Tepter is to pay attention to what he says at any given moment, but keep an even closer eye on what he does with his portfolios. So what have they looked like? If you pull out a printout of Tepper, and we've included this up to 2016, since the book only goes up to 2014, his portfolio, which has names like Allergan, Google, Facebook, Allstate, Pfizer, has performed a whopping 19% per year compared to 4.9% for the S&P. That's the highest we have in the book uh, and some pretty astonishing outperformance as well. So a really interesting one. And, and kind of to contrast that to Buffett, who's underperformed seven of the last 10 years in the U.S., this Tepper portfolio has outperformed. And it's something like, I may have to go back to the tape on this one, but it's something like 13 in the last 16 years. So pretty incredible. Next, we're going to move on to one of the most classic, famous value investors on the planet. And this is the Baupost Group's Seth Klarman. We have a quote to start, which says, from Seth, it says, In capital markets, price is set by the most panicked seller at the end of a trading day. Value, which is determined by cash flows and assets, is not. In this environment, the chaos is so extreme, the panic selling so urgent, that there's almost no possibility that sellers are acting on superior information. Indeed, in situation after situation, it seems clear that fundamentals do not factor into their decision-making at all. The Intelligent Investor, Ben Graham's definitive book on value investing, was selling in paperback for $12.97 on Amazon in November 2014. 
At the same time, Margin of Safety, the out-of-print investment book by Graham disciple Seth Klarman, was fetching anywhere from $2,000 to $4,500 on Amazon. What makes the latter so valuable is not just its scarcity, but also its author. For the chance to own a bit of Klarman wisdom, adoring fans will ignore the whole concept of buying at a discount that underlies the practice of value investing. Warren Buffett, who has been called the Sage of Omaha for his value investing acumen, is in good company at the top with Seth Klarman, who has been similarly dubbed the Sage of Boston. Since founding Balpo's group in 1983, Klarman has grown into a hedge fund giant, managed over $30 billion. Its flagship fund has churned out more than 17% annual return since its founding, handily beating the S&P 500 and doing it while often holding 40% or more of its assets in cash. Like many value investors, Klarman likes to slowly build up concentrated bets, and he accepts long holding periods of three to five years. For example, Balpo spent three years amassing a 35% ownership state in Identix Pharmaceuticals of Cambridge, Mass. When Merck Co. announced a $4 billion takeover in June 2014, they realized nearly a billion dollars in profits. So how does he do it? He explained his basic philosophy to television talk show host Charlie Rose during a 2010 interview. Quote, investing is the intersection of economics and psychology. The economics, the valuation of the business, is not that hard. The psychology... How much do you buy? Do you buy it at this price? Do you wait for a lower price? What do you do when it looks like the world might end? Those things are harder. Knowing when you stand there, buy more, or something legitimately has gone wrong and you need to sell, those are harder things. That you learn with experience. You learn by having the right psychological makeup. He went on to say that some people were born with a nerve and intuition to be great investors. For me, it is natural. For a lot of other people, it is fighting human nature. In Margin of Safety, Klarman credits success to the Graham and Dodd model, claiming that one must be willing to walk away from an alluring investment should careful scrutiny reveal that the investment does not provide sufficient room for error. Klarman hits his natural ability to value investing after working to intern for two years at Mutual Shares Corporation under the tutelage of Max Hine and Michael Price. A Harvard MBA, Klarman was soon recruited by one of his former professors there to run a family office. That led Klarman to launch Balpost in 1983 with $27 million, its name combining parts of the names of the families being represented. These days, its clients include Harvard University itself, along with Yale and Stanford. Klarman has a special knack for complex transactions that often come with limited liquidity. He has purchased real estate that was acquired by the U.S. government in the savings and loan collapse of the 1990s, dabbled in Parisian office buildings, and drilled into Russian oil companies. Balpos has made a killing in the aftermath of Bernie Madoff's massive Ponzi scheme by buying claims from victims who figured they stood little chance of fully recovering their losses. Balpos bought $230 million worth of claims for $74 million, then saw its investment more than double in value after a favorable court ruling on distribution of certain assets. Although Klarman seems to delight in fishing for opportunity in obscure and complex deals, he is no slouch when it comes to stock picking. He runs a concentrated portfolios, as the evidence by his positions, and we'll update this, but as the third quarter of 2014, the top five represent the lion's share of invested assets. And that's the true today. The market value in the top 10 positions as of the last filing, 77%. As a long-term investor, Klarman doesn't spend much time monitoring the daily movement of markets. His office features a desk piled high with papers, a computer, and some half-filled water bottles. No Bloomberg terminal, the device with access to market data that traders rely upon. Klarman runs Balpost with the same kind of deliberate planning. Rather than divide up his analysts according to specific sectors of the market, like pharma, financial oil, he assigns them to general areas of investment opportunity instead. Some focus on distressed debt, while others are oriented toward post-bankruptcy equity, and still others work on spin-off and index fund deletions, and so on. 
Process allowed Klarman to remain vigilant about mispriced securities, overleveraged companies, and misguided selling. And while Klarman cautions the investor against the uncertainties of the market and identifies the current economic environment as the most alarming in his lifetime, he still believes there are real opportunities to make sound investments. Klarman prides himself as much on not losing money as he does on making it. He's only had two negative years, may have to update that, 92 and 2008, and also note that he invests in other assets besides stocks, including real estate, bonds, and cash, and his top 10 clone would have had five down years since 2000, because remember, we're talking about long-only equities here. When Charlie Rose asked Klarman to name his biggest mistakes, the sage of Boston thought for a moment, came up empty, I've never really screwed up a lot, knock on wood. How many investors who had been at it for three decades and say that? Summing up his investment philosophy, he said, I would be buying what other people are selling. I would be buying what is loathed and despised. So what's he buying these days? I printed out his recent 13F, and it shows that if you go back to 2000, his performance, similar to Buffett, 10.2% versus 4.9% for the S&P. Uh, similar volatility, a little higher volatility. One of the cool things about his portfolio is you end up with a hugely different holding list than you see with other hedge funds. So for example, um, there's some names on here that probably many have never heard of. Viasat, uh, VSAT, Synchrony Financial, Allergan, that was one we just mentioned, um, 21st Century Fox, PBF Energy, Antero Resources, Theravance Biopharma, Colony North Star, Chinary Energy, all sorts of these. But uh, one of the interesting parts is you can also invest in Klarman or Baupost in a fairly large drawdown. He had a pretty terrible year in the latter half of 2014 and 2015. So he's at levels that you haven't seen since back to 2013 and probably arguably about a not quite 50% drawdown, but not too far off, I believe. Anyway, um, one of my favorite investors, a really interesting one to uh, follow. We were going to talk a little bit about fund groups and strategies. I'm going to cut this short, and we're going to see what everyone thinks about this sort of really long podcast. Uh, if y'all really like it, let us know or hate it. Um, we got you know another dozen profiles in the front part of the book, another 20 in the back. We could start doing this weekly on a different day than Wednesday. Uh, adding them on at some point. Let us know what you think, positive or negative feedback on mapfavorshow.com. We're going to do a summary and implementation, real quick summary of, of some ideas here. A reminder, you can get it, download a free book for this uh, podcast. So let's do the final two chapters and then we'll, we'll shut this down. So I always like to read research paper, book summaries in bullet format, maybe because I like to skip to the end, kind of like this podcast. Uh, hopefully you enjoy the fascinating world and many of these fund managers and the ideas presented here will be a great starting point for more research and stock ideas. You can always follow along with my favorite ideas as well on the idea farm. So we're going to condense this 200 plus page book in less than 10 bullet points. One, it is very simple to track holdings of institutional fund managers using 13F filings submitted quarterly to the SEC. Two, following a subset of fund managers can lead to new investment ideas. Additionally, Investment portfolios can be constructed tracking a hedge fund's long portfolio performance without many of the traditional drawbacks of allocating to private funds. Number three, because value managers have long-term holding periods and low turnover, the 45-day delay in reported holdings should not be a significant drawback. Number four, case studies are presented examining 20 value value investors. Back-tested results are presented for the portfolio since 2000. 
Number five, results indicate that by tracking and rebalancing portfolios quarterly, an investor can effectively replicate the long holdings of value hedge funds without paying the high hedge fund fees. Next up, following the top value hedge funds can result in excess returns with inline volatility compared with the equity and hedge fund indices. An investor could invest in multiple managers. We didn't touch on this today to create his or her own fund of funds again without paying an additional layer of fees. Additional applications include constructing hedge portfolios, leverage portfolios, as well as sector portfolios. So talk a little bit about implementation. So how does one go about implementing these strategies? First, you could track any one manager or build your own hedge fund of funds by choosing a group of your favorite managers. We demonstrate you could replicate most managers with their top five holdings. So even if you follow 20 funds, that's a fairly reasonable list of 100 stocks. And then if you exclude the top holding as a suboptimal pick, that reduces the number to 80 stocks. However, it's very important to pay attention to commissions as well as spreads that an investor would pay to execute this portfolio. Thankfully, there are a number of brokerages that charge reasonable transaction costs as well as plenty that do not. Some brokerages to explore include Interactive Brokers, Motif, Folio, TD Ameritrade, and including one that doesn't charge any costs, Robinhood. There's some other good sites that track 13F holdings, include Whale Wisdom and Insider Monkey, and newsletters such as Market Folly and Super Investor Insight. For those who don't want to track and trade 13F strategies, there are a handful of funds, public and private, that are managed by professional investors tracking 13F strategies. A very enterprising research with time on their hands could find a stock database without survivor bias. Norgate's a great one, by the way. And piece together back tests from publicly available databases. Uh, other databases include Bloomberg, the SEC, and FactSet. Be forewarned, it is a tedious process. So I'm going to wind down today. In the appendix, there are other resources. Remember, freebook.mevfaber.com. To download this, you got websites for 13Fs. You got a list of conferences to learn more. You got a list of books that profile top hedge fund managers. Even cooler, suggested reading from top hedge fund managers, including John Griffin's Blue Ridge, uh, Bill Ackman's Pershing Square, Seth Klarman's Bowpost, Dave Einhorn's Greenlight, Buffett. Dan Loeb's third point. All those have recommended reading. So we're going to wind this down. Everyone, thanks for taking the time to listen today. Again, Jeff and I always welcome feedback and questions through the mailbag at feedback at themebfabershow.com. As a reminder, you can always find the show notes and the other episodes at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you're enjoying the podcast, leave us a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing. 